Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Welcome back to the Ancient World Podcast and to this special episode about the Aeneid and Virgil's great epic about the founding story of the Roman Empire. So we made now 10 episodes of a series and we put it on the subscription podcast on patreon.com slash ancientworld. So it's being published now like the last couple of weeks and the last episode is going to come on April the 6th. So we just wanted to give a little bit of a, um, a taste of what the epic story is about and some of the highlights. I'm going to read some excerpts from from both um, the battle scenes and kind of the bigger journey of Aeneas and how Virgil, when he writes this story, connects Troy and the Greek heritage to the founding of the Roman Empire and the Roman culture and then also kind of tries to write how the Romans are surpassing the Greeks and then making this as a big tribute to Emperor Augustus. So... Just a few words about the work first. So the Aeneid was written by Virgil uh, between the year of 29 to 19 BC, and it was commissioned by Emperor Augustus himself. It's made of 12 books, uh, about usually 25 to 30 pages. So it's about four or 500 pages in total. And it's both the founding story of Rome and also kind of the moral groundwork for the Roman culture with a focus on on virtues like uh, pietas and intellectual humility and also sacrificing yourself for a greater cause. So uh, just a little bit about the the plot, kind of the, the storyline in itself. It starts with uh, Aeneas being in in uh, Carthage, meaning like the, the on the north of Africa. And being stranded with his fleet because of a storm that Juno, uh, which is then the wife of Jove, meaning Jupiter or Zeus, she made a storm that made them uh, seek refuge in Carthage. And then Aeneas starts telling the story how they had to flee from Troy and he is one of the Trojans. And this is connecting it to Homer and the fall of Troy. So they had to flee from Troy, then they go to Trace and then they go down. Uh, through like the Greek islands down to Crete. They sail up at the coast, kind of with Albania, over to Puglia in the south, the heel of Italy, and then to Sicily, try to go around Sicily, and then they get stranded. And then they go back to Sicily, and then they reach the shore again of Italy around Naples, today's Naples, and then they visit the underworld, and then it ends with that they come to Gaeta and set kind of their foot on the very edge of Latium and that's the end of the first six books. So half of the work of Virgil is just a story of this journey and is then modeled partly after the Odyssey by Homer and then the second part is modeled after the Iliad and that's the whole war of Latium. So it's a really packed big work. It's super fascinating to read. It's so 
vivid and cinematic and full of beauty as well. And in some parts of it is really deep with symbolism. So we're just going to read a couple of of the excerpts from the book uh, to get a little taste of it. And then you can see how uh, both this is founding so much of the, the identity of the Roman Empire and the culture, and we have also connected it in the series on the subscription podcast uh, with Dante and how we see echoes of Virgil in so much of Dante's writing, in addition to Virgil being the, the guide of Dante himself or the pilgrim in the Divine Comedy for the first two books or up to the, to the seventh terrace of the the Mount Purgatory, and then a little bit into the Garden of Eden. So we wanted to first read a passage from when they are they have come to Latium, and you have the setup for the conflict between Aeneas, who is the hero of the Trojans and the one who will be kind of the father of the Latin people, and then the one who is in Latium, who is called Turnus, and he is this main suitor of the princess in Latium, and he's then put aside because there's a prophecy to the king of Latium that they will someone will come and that will be the kind of the seed of the of a, of the glory of a new people. So when Aeneas comes into Latium, he is welcomed as a hero. So that is kind of the setup of the, the beginning of the wars between Turnus and Aeneas. Uh, but there's a special passage about the Temple of Janus. So this is an ancient idea that you had the Temple of Janus, the god Janus, who is then, he has two heads, and he looks kind of both backwards and and like into the city and out of the city at once if he's kind of guarding the gate of the city. And when the doors of the Temple of Janus are open, that's a time of war. So the description with these gates, because the conflict has been building, the king of Latium is very reluctant, but then Turnus is pushing, and also Juno, because Juno is very important in the whole kind of driving the story that she is against Aeneas, she's against the Trojans, and she tries to to stop this unfolding of events towards the founding of Rome, while then her husband, Jupiter, or Zeus, is for this, so there's a there's a kind of a intervention from both parts, which influences the whole storyline. So at this point, the king of Latium doesn't want war, but Turnus wants it, and also Juno. So it says here: there are twin gates of war, so men call them, hallowed by religious awe, and the terrors of fierce Mars. A hundred brazen bolts close them, and the eternal strength of iron and Janus, their guardian, never quits the threshold. Here, when the sentence of the fathers is firmly fixed on war, the council, arrayed in quirinal robe and gabine cincture, with his own hand unbars the grating portals, with his own lips calls forth war. Then the rest of the warriors take up the cry and brazen horns blare out their hoarse accord. With such custom then too, 
Latinus, who is the king of Latium, was bidden to proclaim war on the sons of Aeneas and to enclose the grim gates. But the father withheld his hand, shrank back from the hateful office and buried himself in blind darkness. Then the queen of the gods, gliding from the sky, with her own hand dashed in the lingering doors and on their turning hinges, Saturn's daughter burst open the ironbound gates of war. All ablaze is Eusonia, erstwhile sluggish and unmoved. Some make ready to march over the plains afoot, some on the high steeds mounted, storm amid clouds of dust. All cry out for arms. So that is the passage of how the real war of Latium is kind of being declared or being made official when these giant doors, gates of the Temple of Janus are being opened, and in this case by Juno or Hera, the wife of Jupiter. And then we want to read a different kind of passage uh, from the underworld. So this is the book six of the Aeneid, and this is when they go into what is in some ways the model of Dante's comedy as well. They go into the underworld, and then Aeneas meets his late father, uh, Anchises, and he gets a description there about the theology of the ancient world and the pagan world. And this is very interesting because this is two, three decades before the birth of the historical Christ. So this is there's, there's no Christianity, there's no new biblical stories being made yet. But you can see how you have many thoughts in this ancient world, in the early Roman world, which is very is fascinating because they're very similar in many ways. So this is a different different type of, of excerpts. But then Anchises is in explaining this to Aeneas and he says that fairy is the vigor and divine the source of those seeds of life so far as harmful bodies clung them not or earthly limbs and frames born but to die. Hence their fears and desires, their griefs and joys, nor do they discern the heavenly light penned as they are in the gloom of their dark dungeon. Still more, when life's last ray has fled, the wretches are not entirely freed from all evil and all the plagues of the body, and it needs must be that many a taint long ingrained should in wondrous wise become deeply rooted in their being. Therefore are they schooled with punishments and pay penance for bygone sins. So this is a super interesting passage about what happens with the souls in the afterlife in, again, this Greek pagan cosmology. And it's so, so close to and it resembles the idea of purgatory in Dante as well. It's often seen as Dante invented the purgatory in the way that he's writing it, but he's really taking a lot of inspiration here from how Virgil describes this through the voice of Anchises, the father of Aeneas. And he has some examples, like that some are hung stretched out to the empty winds, from others the stain of guilt is washed away on the swirling floods or burned out by fire till length of days. When time's cycle is complete, has removed the inbred taint and leaves unsoiled the ethereal sense and pure flame of spirit. Each of us undergoes his own purgatory. Then we are sent to spacious Elysium. 
So this is the paradise in the underworld in this ancient mythology. So that was the second excerpt we wanted to, to, to show here. And then we have two more. We want to look at how Zeus is intervening in the journey of Aeneas. And this is in book four when Aeneas has become married to Dido, the queen of Carthage. And it's something that could be seen as a happy life. But then there's a reminder to Aeneas that this is not his destiny. This is not his mission or what he is supposed, the role that he is supposed to play in the much bigger, in the much bigger context. So then Zeus intervenes and talks to Mercury and sends Mercury, the kind of messenger god, and he says this message. Go forth, my son, call the Zephyrs, glide on thy wings, and speak to the Dardan chief now dallies in Tyrian Carthage and heeds not the cities granted by the fates. So carry down my words through the swift winds. Not such as this did his lovely mother promise him to us, nor for this twice rescue him from the Grecian arms. But he was to rule over Italy, a land teeming with empire and clamorous with war to hand on a race from Toyser's noble blood and bring all the world beneath his laws. If the glory of such a fortune fires him not, and for his own fame's sake he shoulders not the burden, does he, the father, grudge Ascanius the towers of Rome, that is, the son of Aeneas, Ascanius, what plans he, or in what hope tarries he among a hostile people, and regards not Eusonia's people, and the Lavinian fields. Let him set sail. This is the sum. Be this the message from me. So these are the words from Zeus or Jupiter, the king of the gods, down to Aeneas, that he has a much more important role to play. And this goes back to this idea of that your individual happiness might not be the main purpose of your life. There could be bigger things that you have to kind of sacrifice a part of your own happiness to this greater cause. So that was from book four. And then the last excerpt, this is from the very end of the whole epic from book 12, the last couple of pages. So there's a bit of a spoiler alert here. Some people might want to turn it off now for a couple of minutes and rather listen to the whole kind of 10 tense episode series that we have we're making and publishing now um, but we're just gonna we have to read the ending because this is it's so important to understand kind of the final uh, in the sense also morals of the whole story and the founding of Rome so this is the the moment where you have the two heroes on each side meeting face to face you have Aeneas and then you have King Turnus who is then the, the leader of the army of many of the Latium people. So Virgil writes here, As he wavers, Aeneas brandishes the fateful spear, seeking with his eyes the happy chance, then hurls it from far with all his strength. Never stone shot from engine or siege roars so loud, never crash so great bursts from thunderbolt. Like black whirlwind on flies the spear, bearing fell destruction, and pierces the corslet's rim and the sevenfold shield's utmost circle. Whizzing, it passes right through the thigh. Under the blow, with knee beneath him, bent down to earth, huge Turnus sank. 
upspring with a groan, the rotillions all, the whole hill re-echoes round about, and far and near the wooded steeps send back the sound. He in lowly suppliance, uplifting eyes and pleading hands, Yes, I have earned it, he cries, and I ask not mercy. Use thou thy chance. If any thought of a parent's grief can touch thee, I pray thee, in Anchises thou too had such a father. Pity Donus' old age, and give back me, or if so thou please, my lifeless body, to my kin. Victor thou art, and as vanquished have the Usonians seen me stretch forth my hands. Lavinia is thine for wife, press not thy hatred further. So now Turnus is admitting defeat and he says that Lavinia, the princess of Latium, is now Aeneas and then he begs for, like, to be spared for his life. Fierce in his arms, Aeneas stood with rolling eyes and stayed his hand. And now more and more as he paused, these words began to sway him. When lo, high on the shoulder was seen the luckless Baldric and there flashed the belt with its well-known studs, belt of young Pallas, whom Turnus had smitten and stretched vanquished on earth and now wore on his shoulders on his foeman's fatal badge. So this is now Aeneas seeing that one of his, the, the main people on Aeneas' side in the war was being slaughtered by Turnus, and now he sees kind of the trophy of the belt of Pallas on Turnus. The other, soon as his eyes drank in the trophy, that memorial of cruel grief, fired with fury and terrible in his wrath, art thou, thou clad in my loved one's spoils, to be snatched hence from my hands. It is Pallas, Pallas who with this stroke sacrifices thee and takes atonement of thy guilty blood. So saying, full in his breast, he buries the sword with fiery zeal. But the other's limbs grew slack and chill, and with a moan, life passed indignant to the shades below. And that's the final scene. This is where Aeneas kills Turnus, and Turnus then goes down to the underworld. So it's a bit abrupt ending of the whole epic, and the aftermath of this war is told by other writers like Ovid, how Aeneas then marries Lavinia, they have children, and that becomes the, the lineage that goes all the way down to Remus and Romulus, who found Rome, and then further down to Caesar, and then also Emperor Augustus, who is again the current emperor when Virgil is writing this, and the one who is commissioning this work as a founding story, a founding epic for the Roman Empire. So that's all we wanted to to show with the excerpts and then this little brief outline of the whole story. So uh, hope some of this was interesting and hope some of you also are interested in hearing the full series and go deeper into Virgil. It's a, it's a big treasure trove and it also changes the, the experience of reading Dante and the Divine Comedy because then you see suddenly that the world of Virgil is very different from the world of Dante and you also have 1300 years between them. So when Dante chooses Virgil as his guide through the first two books, he is 
more like a contemporary person choosing someone from a very distant uh, past who also lived in a different world. So especially in Purgatory, you then can see more clearly how, since that is uh, kind of blended with the biblical stories, that for Virgil, this is puzzling. He uses words like uh, like uh, amazing on some of the points. For example, that they can't climb the mountain in the darkness. They need the light, which is kind of a metaphor for like divine illumination, which is necessary for a spiritual growth. And then it makes more sense the reactions of Virgil and also the dynamic between the pilgrim, Dante, and Virgil in Dante's Divine Comedy. So with that, hope some of this was interesting and a bit inspiring and um, hope you're still having a great day. And as always, thank you so much for listening and see you again in another episode. Bye-bye. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.